John Davis and John Fox are two of the most prolific producers working today. John Davis started with Predator back in 1987, and today he has stories for us about hanging out with Arnold in the jungle. But we're also mostly talking about hanging out with The Rock in the Jungle Cruise, along with producer John Fox. What's amazing about talking to these guys is that they produce the biggest movies. Uh, Jungle Cruise is one of the big tentpoles of the year, if not the biggest. It's with Disney. And they reveal that even at this scale, the scale they work, with the track records they have, and we're talking about massive budgeted movies year after year with the biggest stars, directors, writers in the business, they still have to go into a room and pitch. And they talk about it just like anybody else who works in this industry. Every job is something they have to work for. And they have to come around to the same basic principles that we all do. And so that makes this interview really interesting, along with just hearing about the kind of scale and scope and what makes them realize more often than not, partway through process, that a movie's not working, even when they've spent all that money and they have all that access and they have all that power and muscle to flex. It's a reminder that at every scale, you'll face the same challenges. And this is how these guys overcome them. Well, first of all, I really want to thank both of you for doing this. Both of your producing careers are long and impressive to say the least. So there's so much we could talk about, but I really want to focus on specifically Jungle Cruise, of course. But I think something I always like to start with in any interview we do for No Film School, because so much of our audience is starting out or curious about making changes in their career or getting started at certain parts of the industry. What was the sort of key turning point for both of you that, that brought you to becoming a producer? What made you realize this is what I want to do um, and this is how I'm going to go about doing it? Well, for me, my dad owned the theater and it was the first twin in Colorado that was in our neighborhood. And I used to see 300 movies a year. I used to go to those blind bidding screenings, which was so exciting, right? Because in, in Colorado at that time, you had to show the exhibitor the movie before they had a before they had to agree to play it. They had the ability to make the choice, see it, make the choice. And so I got to go to all of those screenings. So I got to see everything and I got to see them early. And I got to work around the mechanics of the theater, which was selling popcorn and and making sure people didn't sneak in and and actually had a ticket. Kind of even more than that, it was as a kid in Colorado watching movie stars and 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 totally being enamored with Hollywood and film. And so for me, it was something I always wanted to do. And when I would see a movie, I would always think about how could I make this better? How could I make this movie? different? Or what did I really like about this movie? What was it that so inspired me? Why did I want to see it again? You know, you just have an experience, I believe, early in life with film that creates this romantic love affair with the medium. Was there a specific, and then I want to go over to, to John, you're both Johns, but <laughs> I want to go over to, to John 
uh, Fox in, in a second. But um, I want to ask, is there or was there a specific film that you can cite that had that sort of, I know what would make this better? Like, I, I, I can think of that. I love that story or that anecdote because I think so many of us have those where we think like, you know, it would have been perfect. But I'd love to know if there's one that comes to mind that you saw early on in the theater that that you felt like or you can recall as like, I had this vision of how I could improve it and it inspired me to be in filmmaking. Well, it, funny thing that happened to me is I started making movies and then I said, you know what? I want to go back and remake certain movies I loved. Mm-hmm. So I don't know if that's an answer to your question. But it kind of is, yeah. <laughs> I went back and, and I remade Dr. Doolittle, but I made it with Eddie Murphy, right? And I used the technology of the time and I made it modern day. And, you know, we spun like, you know, a sequel out of it and, and, and it kind of lived on and on and on. I did it with Flight of the Phoenix, which was a movie that I loved. I loved the idea of it. I love airplanes. Mm-hmm. I've always loved airplanes and aviation and flight. So I remade that. And I grew up watching all the Walter Matthau, Jack Lemon movies, um, Fortune Cookie and Odd mm-hmm. Couple. Yeah. And so it's like, I want to work with those guys. Now, by the time I got to town, those guys were like in their late 70s, right? So I had to make Grumpy Old Men. But then I made <laughs> Grumpy Old Men too, And then I made Out to Sea. And, 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 and so I, I made a series of movies with these guys. I just watched in the theater when I was younger. So kind of, that was my way of doing it. It must've been a really cool experience to have, you know, grown up on the fortune cookie, which is an amazing movie. I agree. And then be like, I'm going to add to the legacy with these guys. I'm going to be a part of it. That's like a dream come true. Right. Again, remember, you know, I'm growing up in Colorado and it felt like, Hollywood and 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 those movie stars were ten thousand miles away, but it felt like it was the most wonderful possible medium anybody could ever hope or aspire to work in. So you know, it always resonated with me. And and John John Fox, I want to jump over to you and ask sort of similarly, what were the early inspirations? What made you think producing is the way? What, what clicked? You know, it, for me, there was never any other, there was, no, there was no other dream. There was no other goal. Like, I, I knew from a really, really young age that I wanted to make movies. At that point, I didn't know producer, writer, director. I just wanted to be a part of it. You know, it, it didn't matter. It did, just didn't matter to me. You know, uh, movies were really my entire life. Uh, and I, I mean that, you know, I used to, we didn't have a theater in my hometown. I had to bike. I had a bike. This is back when you could be 10, 11 years old and your parents are like, all right, uh, we'll see you. <laughs> see, and, see you tomorrow. <laughs> yeah. And I would bike uh, about three, four miles uh, to the next town over that had, uh, that had a twin screen theater. And I would see all my movies there on the weekends and I double features back when they're, you know, they had double features and, you know, I mean, I remember, I, I mean, I remember the double features. I remember, you know, I remember sitting there through Romancing the Stone and Buckaroo Banzai, you know, (laughs) the the double feature and like seeing it twice in a row, you know, the double feature, like for me, there was just never any, there there was a, the, uh, the original Leprechaun movie. I know this is very random. 
but the original Leprechaun movie, I believe Jen Aniston was in it. Yeah, I was um, going to say. Sorry, it Jennifer. shot, yeah, it shot in my hometown. And I remember biking over there. I was probably 12 or 13 and I just snuck onto the set. I don't even know what the hell I was doing there. I just wanted to absorb what was going on, you know, and, and they, you know, nobody kicked me out. I just kind of hung out there all, all night uh, awesome. watching, you know, and I just wanted, I just wanted so desperately to be a part of it. And that's never changed, you know, producing, I, I, I started, I began as a studio executive uh, at DreamWorks and, and really the movies, the movies that defined my taste were uh, Amblin like very clearly style. Amblin. Yeah, yeah. Amblin movies. I mean, Back to the Future, Young Sherlock Holmes, Young Sherlock Holmes, it doesn't get its due, by the way. Young mm. Sherlock Holmes was so far ahead of its time. It was the tone and world of, of a Harry Potter long before Harry Potter was even, you know, was even a kernel of something in J.K. Rowling's mind. You know, it, it, it was, it, it, you know, those early Amblin films were just, they were like scripture to me. So to get to work for Steven for, a, you know, almost a decade, I was executive at DreamWorks, you know, and then uh, I, sl- I slid over to the producing track once I came over to join John. And so what, did you really start? At, was What was your first yeah. job in the industry? Yeah, take me well, to the my beginning. F- yeah, my first job, the first job I was ever paid for, I, I'm sensing a theme here, but I snuck onto the... Uh, <laughs> The lot at Universal Studios. I was um, I was 19, uh, I believe, and I was in college. And I snuck on the lot. I um, had a collared shirt on and pants. I thought I, had, I needed to look official, and I had mocked up a fake re- a fake resume of credits I of jobs I didn't have. And I <laughs> went knocking door to door at the production companies, and you know, and saying, "Hey, I'm 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 John Fox. You know, I, I'll work hard." And here's my resume. And and everybody said no. And then I came to one door and this woman whose name I I, I don't know, I can't remember, but she was so lovely. And she said, oh, you you, you go to UCLA? And I said, yeah. She said, I'm a Bruin. I'm a Bruin alum. I said, oh, that's that's so so great. And she said, "Uh, all right, we need a PA. Why don't you come (laughs) on board? So she hired me. I was a PA on the television show Time Cop. Uh, and, and it was a short lived show. I was the lowest man on the totem pole, but my job was killer. I was, I, what I was, I was the go between for the writer's room and the set. So the writer's room was on the universal lot and they would shoot on the back lot. So I was in a go-kart and, and I was to just kind of transport scripts. This is back when you printed out scripts, right. And, 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 and other, and other, you know, things to and from set. And I, I had a golf cart that the Teamsters had taken off the regulator on the engine. So my golf cart went, no joke, like 60 miles an hour. So I would fly, I would fly around that, I would fly around that lot and security would get so pissed off at me, you know, because I'd just be blazing past them. But I thought it was the greatest job in the world. You know, I had access, I had no accountability and had all this access and I was reading scripts constantly, you know, um, that, you know, just episodic scripts. And there were some really good writers, Dauphin Millar and uh, Mark Verheiden. They were writers on the show at the time. So just like a really good group of writers. And I would just absorb everything, everything. It was a short-lived job, but I, I loved it. So that was my first gig. And then I became an assistant. After I graduated college, I became an assistant. Oh, by the way, I also, while in college, took a job one summer as a, as a runner for Propaganda Films, which at the time was the biggest music video and commercial house run by um, Steve, ran anonymous and just Steve Golan. So Steve okay. Golan, Steve Golan ran, he began and ran 
propaganda. And I was, uh, I was this, I was this runner and I, my job was, this is when, God, they had a stable of the coolest directors in Hollywood. It was Michael Bay, Spike Jones, Anton Fuqua, Dominic Senna, Mark Romanek, David Fincher. Uh, and these guys were all part of the stable there. And I was like, I was like 19, 20 years old going, this is fucking incredible. You know, and I was literally washing their cars, you know, and I was, and I didn't care. I thought it was the greatest job. I still do. You know, and, and I was also part of my job was taking checks that came into the company and depositing them a couple blocks away at the bank. And I'm not kidding. I was depositing multi-million dollar checks. And That's I was like, crazy. why are they entrusting this to me? I'm just some young shithead. Why am I carrying it? I'm carrying a $2 million check up to Wells Fargo to be deposited. This is nuts. Brian, did they uh, ever find that check, the missing one? <laughs> I wish. I wish I had the balls to do something like that. I'm surprised. Anyway. I am genuinely shocked that they handed you a $2 million check to deposit, but that's not uh, an exaggeration. That's, truly. Yeah, yeah. That's crazy. So, so you kind of came up the, you know, the, I mean, the sneak on set kind of his old fashioned way. Cause legend has it. Spielberg did it as well, but like you came yeah. up the PA route and, and became an assistant. Became a, and I assume like from there became a, went into development maybe. Yeah. I was a very young uh, executive. I, so I was, a, I was, a, I was an assistant for a short time at a production company, um, had a deal at Warner brothers. And then I interviewed with Mike DeLuca, um, right when he began at DreamWorks, I was about 24 years old at the time I interviewed with Mike. He hired me as a creative executive. So I worked at DreamWorks for almost a decade under Mike, who was just a God, what an incredibly smart and just a fantastic guy. Just had a, a, a just had a really fun run at DreamWorks uh, during that time. We made um, I made Anchorman, I made the first Transformers movie, I made a movie called Euro Trip, which not a lot of people have seen, but I, I think is just a just a great little film with uh, Berg Schaefer and Mandel. Yeah, it was a good good time at DreamWorks. And John, you know, I know I got kind of what your your inspiration, your beginning, your interest, but what was the first job you had? Like, what was the first step career-wise like that got you in the door? Well, I did it in a unusual manner, right? And the unusual manner was I was at Harvard Business School and it was my last semester. And everybody was trying to figure out really where they wanted to go. We all interviewed and people would take you out to dinner and you could have a really great lobster steak dinner every single night from Morgan Stanley or BCG (laughs) or General Electric, whatever. And we did all these dinners and it was kind of this competition we had. How many great free dinners could we get every night in a row? Like three months worth of steak dinners, right? And everybody's trying to decide what they do. And I had these offers to go into consulting or to go into an investment bank or, you know, one of my friends wanted me to start a hedge fund with him and I was going to, and he was very successful. He made a billion dollars. So I probably should have, but I decided, okay, what is it you really want to do? What is it that's really exciting? And I said, I either want to do sports or movies. That's what I want to do. And I did my senior marketing thesis on the viability of regional cable sports networks. And I went and interviewed Bill Daniels, who's considered the father of cable TV and was, you know, just thinking like I was, he was going to start something up called the prime sports network. Hmm. And 
he said to me, why don't you run it? Let's start this and, wow. and, and we're going to do this. And that's, pretty cool. that's a pretty cool offer to come when you're just doing basically a study on the concept. Yes, right. Why did you do it with me? <laughs> okay. I had done a lot of work and really kind of felt that, you know, you were going to have two streams of income. One stream of income was going to be advertising and the other is you could get fees and that all of a sudden it was going to be a much better model. And at the time, TV stations had, you know, networks had to pay TV stations, you know, carriage, right? So you got mm -hmm. comp, you know, you did away with a lot of stuff. The economics started to look really kind of special here and the programming was going to be tailored to each region. So it was going to be more interesting. And, and, and so there was a lot of things about it that made a lot, a lot, a lot of sense, right? And so I had agreed to do it. And my father, who was in the oil business at the time, um, did a hostile takeover, right? <laughs> and he did a hostile takeover of 20th Century Fox. And he did it at a time where you didn't have to actually put any real money up. So, you know, he put a little bit of money up and he borrowed the rest of it from the banks. And all of a sudden, he had control of this conglomerate. And he said, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to sell off the Aspen Ski Corp and I'm going to sell off their TV stations and I'm going to sell off their whatever. And there's some real estate that I'm going to keep. And, you know, and obviously, you know, we'll sell off the studio, right? And I'm going to make a lot of money because the piece is worth more than the whole. Mm -hmm. um, and he said to me, look, I've always wanted to work with you. Would you come with me? And I said, there's only kind of one thing I would really want to do. There's this fledgling company out there called ESPN. And I've been doing a <laughs> lot of work understanding this company. And this company's losing $100 million a year. And it's owned by another oil company. You know them, the people at Getty, you're friends with them. I'd like to buy that company and merge it in Fox. And he said, fine, you can do it. And so I got a deal done, right? A guy named Stuart Evie. The only thing they did interesting besides oil was this and walnuts, right? Yeah. And at the last minute, they called and called off the deal. They said, look, makes no sense for us to own this company. We're an oil company and we're covering, you know, volleyball, high school volleyball, but everybody's <laughs> having such a great time. Nobody can let it go. <laughs> and so at that time, Bill Daniels had already hired somebody else to run the company, um, his company. So there wasn't a job there. And my dad hadn't sold off Fox yet. And I said, I'm going to spend three years doing what I always wanted to do. I'm going to spend three years as an executive. I'm just going to meet everybody I can meet. And I'm just going to learn and teach myself how to be a movie producer because you're going to sell the studio. And I just want to be in this business because I've gotten close enough to be enamored by it. And I met Arnold Schwarzenegger and got really friendly with him. And I made one of his movies. And that led me actually producing Predator, which we were working on together. And I just, in three years, tutored myself in every aspect of filmmaking. I gave myself my own, you know, kind of master course. So um, you pursued the, the sports lead up to a point, but then when that kind of like went in a different direction, you the movie potential to go crash course on the movie business was right there in front of you. 
Well, I had always said to myself, I either want to be in sports or movies. Right. And sports went down, but movies was there. Right. Yeah. And, you know, he sold the company three years later because he always said he was going to. And he sold it to Rupert Murdoch. And I am a young, you know, movie producer, ready to go, knowing the town. And I just went out and I made my first movie, which is Predator. And I had, and I literally have been in production every day for 35 years since. Well, that's amazing. I mean, Predator is quite a debut <laughs> as a producer. <laughs> like it's, it, it must have been almost like was it was it was it surprising that or did you have a lot of confidence? Did you know you had great cards in your hand, so to speak, when Predator came out? Well, I had um, Arnold. I had of Arnold. Of course, yeah, but I mean, a, it's still, and, he had, and, and he was becoming the, a big star. Right. And the Thomas brothers wrote the script and I was the executive on the project, right? Yeah. So I just jumped over from being, I developed the script with the Thomas brothers. So I just jumped over from being the executive to being the producer. And Arnold said to me, come to the jungle. We're going to have a really great time. And <laughs> I went to the jungle and we smoked cigars all day long. And Made a kick-ass you know, movie. <laughs> well, and we both, you know, per diem was like, $2,000 a week or something for me, right? And for $2,000 a week, I had this hotel suite right next to Arnold's at the El Camino Hotel. And my suite had a swimming pool in it. And Arnold mm. brought a chef with him. And he said, I have to work out. So let's figure out how I can do my workouts. And I said, I'm going to take the ballroom at the hotel, invite all your body buddy, your, your bodybuilder buddies with you. We had... 14 bodybuilders come and I turned the, and I turned the ballroom into an insane gym and everybody go work out in the morning. Like, you know, and then we'd all go to the set. And after we shot until lunch, we would be having toast points with smoked salmon in the middle of the jungle from his chef. Oh, and I man. just thought this is the greatest profession in the history of the world. When you do it like that, it is, man. <laughs> that now, just sounds way, like... ES, ESPN, <laughs> ESPN, which I had a deal done to buy it for $100 million, right? Ended up being worth $56 billion. So you'd have to say it's the biggest whale that ever got away. But instead, I got to have this great life. You know and what? Don't, been, there's a thing of you like kind of make your own luck. Like, I mean, you could say like, yeah, I, I had this inkling that I should buy ESPN because I think they got something there. But hey, I'm I'm eating in the jungle with Arnold and making this amazing action, defining action movie, like and launching a career that like, I mean, you you make your own luck, right? Well, and then Bill Daniels came back to me and I really loved Bill Daniels, right? He was a guy who made a billion dollars and he gave every nickel of it away. He was a recovered alcoholic you know, who just wanted to do good in the world. He was a really good guy. How many billionaires are really just a good, you know, decent human being who want, wants to do good in the world? And he came back to me a couple of years later. I'm in the middle of it. And he said, look, company's getting pretty big and all that stuff, right? Come in and run it now, right? <laughs> and I'm like, you are so kind and generous and wonderful, but I'm addicted. And I can't walk away from this. And he said, I understand. He said, I understand. He goes, uh, and he was a real mentor to me. 
he was yeah. really, and, and so it was a really painful decision not going back, you know, but I stayed. Your career in virtual production starts here and now. Earn your spot on tomorrow's set with Synapse Virtual Production in LA by enrolling in RIT's immersive 10-day course this June. An exclusive experience in LA, you'll get the foundation you need to grow your career in a virtual production studio, the kind behind the groundbreaking effects seen in Disney's The Mandalorian and Marvel's Avenger films. Limited seats are available. Learn more and enroll today at vpritcertified.education. That's vp.ritcertified.education. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. You know, I want to, there are so many things we could talk about, guys, but I want to get to, we were talking about the jungle, so I want to get to Jungle Cruise. I mean, because just talking about Predator in the jungle and Arnold, and so Jungle Cruise ties in so many of the things we've been talking about here. It's a, first of all, it feels like it's a love letter to old movies. I mean, a certain kind of old movie, like adventure serials, but like also African Queen, Indiana Jones, but also like Predator, you know, Arnold and and The Rock, of course, as an, as an inheritor of all of that. Can you maybe start with John Fox real quick? Just tell me about this property and Disney and this coming together and how long has this been in the works and 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 turning a ride that is so beloved, so known into a feature film. Right? Yeah, it, it's been six years, six years since John and I brought a story for the movie to Disney. Sean Bailey, you know, he read the story. He's like, okay, I like this. He's like, can you get a movie star? And we went, we reached out to Dwayne, you know, I had made a movie with Dwayne years and years ago and we kept in touch and he read it and read the story and thought, yeah, like, let's do this. And it was one of those rare examples as a producer, where the talent reads it quickly, responds quickly, and he Dwayne called he personally called Sean Bailey and said, "I'm in. I want to do this." And within two days, really, we had we had a movie on track, and we had we had Jungle Cruise. Now, still had the you know Herculean task of finding writers and developing a great script and all of that, but the 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 genesis of the movie came together really fast. You know, um, we got we really- got lucky. A real quick follow-up on that that I'm interested in is, so this is a Disney property. Yeah. Where were you guys? So, But you came to Disney with the idea for the story, knowing that they had, it could only be Disney. They had to green light it. Where where yeah. were you guys in terms of like IP? Were you like, we're going to develop something that, this is just an interesting, like, like well, finer point of the business that I'm curious about. And I have no idea. Either well, of you can chime in. Here's, here's the thing. You know, when you make enough movies, people start to trust you, especially if they work, right? And you also know everybody in the business. So I knew Alan Horn and love him and loved mm-hmm. him and still do. I, I think he is the statesman of our business. And I just called Alan Horn. And, you know, he basically said, all right. And then John and I went to, you know, 
Sean Bailey, right? And we were in the door. Yeah. And at that, I mean, look, it, it, it began because we, you know, there, there were very few big titles, big rides, iconic properties at Disney that weren't already being exploited, you know? Right. Um, and, and growing up as a huge Disney geek, I began to kind of investigate. And uh, Jungle Cruise was a ride that both John and I have ridden countless times. Uh, sure. You know, both of us, both of us uh, I grew up here and John has obviously spent a lot of time here in Los Angeles. And I, I investigated and found out that it had been, it's a dead project uh, for seven or eight years. They hadn't touched it. And I thought, okay, there's an opportunity here. You know, there's an opportunity here to potentially, you know, bring this thing back to life. They had moved off of the previous producers. So there was no producer attached to it any longer. And I, I really felt that there was an opportunity. And, and so we sat down and we cracked a story. And that's how it all kind of got jump started. you know? When I they, see. Yeah. And they put us on officially as producers at that point. Once we had Dwayne, they put us on and we were off to the races. So it was sort of like, we know if we can find, like if we can land on a property that they have that's that's dormant, so to speak, yeah. that works for us. And this was the one that jumped out at you. And then once yeah. you had that story and you had the, the star, you were- That's right. Were that's out. right. And then we were locked in. You know, but that's the, way these big, that, that's the way these big titles at Disney, whether it be remaking an animated film like Aladdin or taking a ride like Jungle Cruise and turning it into a movie- it, it, it is a bit of a, it is a bit of a sweepstakes. It's a bit of a bake-off where producers come in, producers come in with their takes or with their package, meaning a, uh, an actor or a director. Right. And, and, and the studio gets to decide, you know, yeah. it's nice because they're in the incoming call business. You know, they've yes. got producers like us and other producers who are, who are coming to them and saying, Hey, we love your property. We got this guy. We got that guy. We got this story. What do you think? What do you think? You know? And, uh, and, and you get, get- what's, what's amazing is you guys too, like, you know, some of the biggest producers in this industry are in this position where you're sort of like, we've got a property. We, we want to pitch you on our version of it. And, oh yeah. And- oh, well, you're sitting for your supper, man. It doesn't, it doesn't matter how many movies we made and whatever success we've had as a company. It doesn't matter. These titles are the crown jewels. They're the, absolutely the crown jewels. I'll tell you, while we were making Jungle Cruise, we were also re- chasing and had a great package together. And it just breaks my heart that we couldn't make it happen. But Haunted Mansion, you know, that was a, there was a time when Haunted Mansion, this is a few years ago, but when it, when it was not coming together at Disney. And so we approached them with a director and, and a really fantastic director and great writers and had a really, I thought, just a, just a wonderful approach to the movie. And we ultimately just couldn't get it done for various reasons. You oh, know, can but you that, tell me after we're done recording? Can you tell me about that? <laughs> <laughs> uh, I really want to know. <laughs> but it broke my heart that we couldn't get it done. They had, they had the track down. They had Ray director, Justin Simeon, um, who I guess just attached to it. Who I'm a huge fan of his. So it's exciting. I'm, I'm happy for them. But, but it broke my heart that we couldn't actually make that happen. But yeah, it, it, it's a sweepstakes. It's a, it's a sweepstakes. What happens? So once, once, I mean, obviously there's so many hurdles you have to clear. Like you have everything, you're starting, you've got your screenwriter, you've got your writers attached now and you have your director or maybe you have a director, you have The Rock or Dwayne Johnson yeah. and you get Emily Blunt. What, like this is a, this is, you know, the biggest move, the biggest kind of movie that exists. So I don't get to talk to the producers of this kind of movie often. Can you tell me a little bit about what, the massiveness of the scale of production and pre-production. And once you're actually shooting this thing, I mean this, you know, with everything. It's epic. It's, it's <laughs> epic. 
Here's the yeah. thing. You always want to be in a situation where somebody says, you have this big hunk of money, go make something great. Because there's always this <laughs> scarcity of, of, of financial resource when you're making film, no matter what film. And they basically say to you at Disney, make a movie that's epic, a tentpole of scale, an event. So cool. And, and, and you kind of go, this is great. And they, and they really give you a great budget to go do this. And you realize if you're making a movie for $500,000 or if you're making a movie for $200 million, yours always is, you always don't have enough. No matter what, <laughs> it's like only if I had a little bit more. Yeah, it's very true. It's, it's amazing to think on the, I'm, but it's, it's amazing, but it makes total sense to me that you could need a little more when you're making something, when the dict, when the rule that comes down is make it epic, make a tent pole. Of course, you're, there's a million, there's 200 million plus ways you could spend. So tell me about, I'm sure there are countless challenges, but just tell me about what you, you look to and say like, this is what we need to prioritize in this epic undertaking. This is what it's, this is how we need to divide our attention. And obviously running the production company, you have other things you're working on too. Well, the 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 only thing that the only priority is is to tell is to tell the story. You know, and I know that may that that may sound pithy, but it's true. You you are there, the filmmaking, the production, our only job is to tell the story. You know, and what does that mean? Well, sometimes it means, you know, 200 extras and, and building an entire port town, you know, and like we did in this movie and, you know, and, and, and major movie stars and, uh, you know, and, and huge effects budget, you know, um, and sometimes it's just two people in a room with the camera and you, it's just what, whatever is needed to tell the best story. Um, and that's really what it comes down to, you know? Um, and sure, I mean, a movie like this is, can be a logistical, a very complicated logistical experience, but yeah, but it all always comes back down to that same thing. Are there any, were there any really tough calls in terms of, you know, what did you shoot on or, you know, what did you, you know, like the sorts of things like that, like the decisions you had to make or compromises along the way? Yeah. Here's, here's what a movie is in the end of the day. A movie in the end of the day is when you have scarcity in a situation. You can't get a location you want. You don't have the money to shoot it. You know, it's better if you shoot it practically than with visual effects, but how do you accomplish that? Really, the thought process and getting around that problem is what creates great innovative filmmaking. Hmm. Because inevitably, you'll come up with a solution, and that solution will make it better. Hmm. And so all of those issues and those challenges and those problems, that creates the thought process that allows you to do something special and different than people have done it in the past. So you yeah, almost see those limitations as opportunity. They are. And throughout the history of the business, anytime yeah. you've had a limitation, you know, look, this entire movie was shot in both Hawaii and Atlanta. You know, we couldn't actually shoot it on the Amazon and pull it off, right? Hmm. Well, you've seen the movie. You can't tell. And no. the same thing with Black Panther. I would Panther. not get it. It doesn't look like Atlanta. <laughs> and the same thing with Black Panther. 
that entire movie was shot in Atlanta, right? Yeah. So you're, you know, you always have challenges and then how am I going to get around it and how am I going to figure it out, right? And inevitably you'll come up with a fabulous solution. Yeah. What's that old phrase, uh, that old saying, that necessity is the mother of invention? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, exactly. Very, I, very applicable to film. Yeah, one of the things that's so nice about the this one, in my opinion, is that you did, it, it feels like we're going to take you on a big, sweeping adventure. And it's fun when movies create experiences, right? Mm. Beyond just telling a story, it's telling a story, but creating a real big scale experience. Is mm. that something with properties that you guys look for? Are there specific things, obviously, when it comes to what you call the bake-off sort of, of these big IPs, the crown jewels, but in just developing in general, what do you what do you guys look for in scripts? What do you look for in property? What excites you about a potential? We, we, we look for characters and human situations and character interactions. We, we approach it first from character and telling that story from character. And then we tell the bigger story. But all good storytelling starts with character, interesting character, and character storytelling. That's what people care about ultimately. They get very tired very quickly of big effect sequences or great action sequences, or even the greatest cinematography in the world. Because in the end of the day, what they really want is what's that human story? What's that story I connect to? What am I feeling? And we don't just like doing, you know, spectacle movies. We like doing sure. intimate dramas sometimes and, and comedies that will, you know, make you laugh. And if, and if you look at the body of work, there's all kind of movies there. And the reason there's all kind of movies there is because both of us love seeing all kinds of movies. Tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Does anyone here know the lyrics? Prove it! Taylor Swift, the Eras Tour. Taylor's version. With four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tonight, only on Disney+. Plus. Yeah, no, I, I mean it's you've you're genre wise, you've certainly run the gamut. Do you ever find yourself in a position or have you either or together where you're you're you know on the ten yard line and you're seeing something about the story and the characters specifically that's not working and you think, Well, what do we do now? Do we reshoot? Do we re edit like yes. All the time. All the time. All the time. time. So, and and so what do you do? And that's because that's a tough spot, right? Well, Well, that's the great thing about Disney. They budget into every movie a certain amount of money for reshoots. So you go in there knowing you're going to reshoot a certain portion of the film, and it gives you an opportunity to make those corrections once you see it up and mount it. So yeah. you're not afraid to identify that. You, you don't have this like, oh, no, it's not working. What are we going to do? You're like, no. okay, you're no figure problem. it out. No, well, listen, when you're, you, you make the movie three times, you script it, you shoot it, you cut it, right? And each time you're trying to make the best movie possible, okay? So when you get to the editing process on a movie and, and you go, oof, you've identified something where you go, this just, the audience, you've tested it. And the audience says, yeah, this, this element just isn't working, right? 
Well, you, you do whatever you can to fix the problem. Your ego is not involved at that point. You are purely in like pragmatic problem solving mode. You know, we have a problem. We've got to fix it. You know, so and, yeah. and when you get into these spots, like this is a, this is a question we always debate, and I've heard so many people talk about. You get a test that maybe gives you certain results with the with the screening, but maybe it it runs contrary to what certain people on the team believe, or maybe some other screenings. Like, how do you you guys are sitting kind of atop the mountain, or pretty? You know, where do you how do you come down and rule in in favor of okay, this criticism is valid, but maybe this one we don't need to worry about as much. Like, how do you make those decisions? You trust your gut? You trust your experience? Yeah. You, you, yeah. Do, you do have to trust your gut sometimes. You know, I, I, I think John and I both agree that we, 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 you, you must listen to the audience. You must listen to them and take what they are saying very seriously. Now, sometimes the audience, you know, the problem can be simply addressed. You know, and then other times, you know, the problem is more fundamental. But either way, you you must listen. We don't ever have the kind of hubris that we're like, oh, we know better than the audience. No, you don't. You don't because they're the one who are paying their fifteen bucks to come see your movie. Um, so and, you, so the test screenings really do end up mattering a big deal in a big absolutely, a hundred percent, absolutely. You can't be slaves to the test screen. You can't be slaves to the the whims of the test audiences, but at the same time, you you must listen to those to that audience. You must. You're an absolute fool if you don't listen. You know. And by the way, what are we doing at the end of the day? We're making movies that people throughout the world can see and have an experience and enjoy. And we're not making them for ourselves. We're making them for an audience, and so we need to be open in that way. Yeah, no, I just I love hearing that from producers of your caliber because I think that the that at every scale filmmakers can get caught up in their own sense of what's best and forget that that they need to listen to what the reactions are from actual crowds. So you you really treat those as those test screenings are are where you literally are testing out the material and deciding, hey, maybe we need to change things drastically. We will find out. You know, you're not Absolutely. afraid. Yeah. I mean, Absolutely. it's really easy to get lost in the weeds. I mean, you know, you've been living with a script for maybe two years. You've seen the movie six or seven times in the editing room. You're you're too close to it. Yeah. 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 I remember I was the executive at DreamWorks on um, Anchorman, the first Anchorman movie. And it's no secret because they've, we've, they've, they've actually spun off the Wake Up Ron Burgundy, which is like all the footage... All the footage we cut from the original movie, they cut into a second version of the movie <laughs> called Wake Up, Brown Burgundy. But when we initially tested the movie, it played like a rock concert up until the third act. And hmm. the third act, the third act that we originally had was Ron and the, uh, she's kidnapped. Christine Applegate is kidnapped and taken to this building and Ron and the team have to infiltrate and, and save her. And it was just, we had the bad guy, was this like environmental terrorist group called the Alarm Clock Gang. And none of it worked. Just none of it worked. The audience <laughs> just didn't, they did not care for it. And so we tested it and the audience hated the third. They loved the movie, but hated the third act. So we at the studio and along with McKay and, and Will and Judd, everyone said, okay, we get it. Like we hear them loud and clear. We got to come up with a new third act. 
And the guys came up with, you know, the bear pit third act that's in the movie now. And, and it worked. And we retested it. And the movie uh, tested huge the second time out with the it's new, with the, with the brand new third act. Yeah. It's amazing to hear stuff like that because I would imagine that in the, the first two movies you made in this instance, the shooting and the, the writing and the shooting, you were like, this yeah. is good. We like our third act, right? Yeah. Like we, you, you wouldn't have moved forward if you didn't think that, but yeah. you were all willing to say like, whatever we thought for the first two rounds of making this movie, we were yeah. wrong. We were that's wrong. An inc- it, uh, that's an again, incredible there's no, lesson. There's no ego. There's no ego. And especially in comedy, you know, those guys are genius. Judd and Adam and Will, those guys are you know, genius, comedy geniuses, but mm-hmm. they know, they know if something's not getting a laugh, if something's not getting a laugh, it's not getting a laugh. It's not working. You know, it's, it's empirical at that point. You know, you're mm. witnessing it. You're seeing it's not getting a laugh. It's not open to interpretation. It's I have, not, yeah. it's not working. You know, it's a great, that's a great point. And I, I, I'm out of time enough that I have to ask one last question, but I'll ask you guys because this, it cues this up. Well, it is empirical with a laugh. And in theory, it would be like with tears. It's yeah. what do you do when you're tra- talking about something that is so much of a, you know, a jungle cruise, for example, like you're not necessarily looking for a laugh or a, you're looking for an experience, a reaction of enjoyment. Maybe the, maybe the way people fill out a form afterwards or questions they're asked. How do you determine then what becomes your evidence? What becomes our evidence of what? Can you of success that? or of, of things working in, in this in test, test screenings or things yeah. that aren't? Oh, oh, it's, How it's, do you identify? it's really, it's really easy. In the end of the day, you got to feel it and you can feel a crowd mm. and you can sense when something's working and you can sense when it's not. You can hear it. You can look at when they're rustling in their seats, when they're looking around or when they're riveted. I love and that. You can, <laughs> and you can yeah. feel, and, and that's. True. And in the end of the day, forget the test results and the whatever and all of that stuff, right? Because we all know that if you become too data-driven, you're going to miss the forest for the trees. You, data can also mislead you. Yeah. It's, you feel it and yeah. you know. And oh, the yeah. director feels it and he knows. And by the way, I've also many times after a test screening... I'll just talk to the audience. I'll, I'll ask the people, a couple of people in attendance, what did you think of the movie? Did you think it was like too fast, too slow? What did you like best about it? Like, I'll just, I'll just quiz people. I don't care. Because <laughs> you want that unfiltered, super objective. They just walked in to see something. Oftentimes, they don't even know what they're seeing. You know, um, it's a, it can be a blind recruit. And so it's, it's the best kind of information that you, can, that you can have on a movie. You know, instead of a bunch of schmucks sitting around an editing room for three months going, I think, <laughs> I think this works. So yeah, I think so. After, the, after yeah. the two millionth time of watching the same thing, yeah. deciding what's good or not. Yeah. You don't know. You've lost, pers- you lose perspective, you know, at a certain point. Yeah. No, that's great. Well, well thank you so much for spending this time with us. You yeah, thank a, you guys. This was fun. A wonderful interviewer. And, we, and we're very thankful that... I, um, you, you're interested in this movie and in movies in general and tell your audience, go see the movie twice, three times. <laughs> <laughs> I've got tickets to take my kids to the El Capitan. I can't wait. Nice, and and nice. my dad, it's a, it's going to be a family affair, which as it should Super be. Cool. Thank you guys for taking <laughs> the time. It's really fun to talk to you, to both. Of Thanks you. man. You too. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks to John 
Davis and John Fox for coming on the podcast. Check out Jungle Cruise. It's in theaters. It's streaming on Disney+. Plus. It's a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. My kids enjoyed it. And be sure to check out stories like this and others at nofilmschool.com. Follow us on Twitter. Like our Facebook page. Subscribe to our YouTube channel. Check out all our other podcasts. We talked to M. Night Shyamalan. We talked to Edgar Wright. We talked to Stillwater writer-director Tom McCarthy. And uh, not to mention our weekly show, which drops every single week on Thursday, where we go over everything happening in the world of filmmaking that you might have missed. Thanks so much for listening. Mm -hmm.